some of you young people hear those dates and you're like, he should be on oxygen or something, you know. <laughs> Golly. We're going to read from John chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to read the portion we dealt with last uh, Sunday and then skip down to the portion we'll uh, look at today. So John 1.1, 1, 1, um, the page number in your pew Bibles, 886, if you don't have your own Bible. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. The reading of the word of God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, open up our hearts to receive your word, to be in awe of it, to relish it, delight in it, to rejoice in you, to be in awe of you, to entrust ourselves to you, to give ourselves up gladly for your, your will and our freedom and happiness in this life. And Lord, we thank you. This will be perfected in the next. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I have been amazed reading in the last year or so of continued anti-Semitism in the world. Uh, One Jewish rabbi talking about the anti-Semitism in Europe said, I guess the Holocaust was not enough. I guess it was not enough. And I wanted to start uh, with this because of the fact that this is a Jew who is writing to us. I want to remind us who is writing and the incredible things that he is saying as a Jew. We see this anti-Semitism sometimes, many times, perhaps at times, most times, has been carried out by Christians. Christians hating Jews. And one of the arguments is, well, they're the ones that killed Jesus, so... We're justified. Yet Peter says in 
uh, Acts 4, talking about it in verses 27 and 28, that it was uh, Herod and Pilate together with the Gentiles and the uh, uh, people of Israel to do what God had planned all along to happen, to put to death his son. But it's the Gentiles and the people of Israel. It was a joint affair and they represent the whole world, Jew and Gentile, the world rejected Christ. The world hated Christ represented in Jew and Gentile. And then you take Paul in Romans nine. Now he's a Jew himself, but he represents our attitude toward the Jews. And he says, I would be accursed in order that my brothers and sisters would come to know Christ. He's pushing himself to the edge of, if it could work, I would be cursed in order that they could know Christ. That's to be our attitude. Longing, hoping for those who are of the very nationality or people of Jesus himself. And then the third thing is just that, remember, Jesus was a Jew. And remember that every one of us is only a believer because Jews brought the gospel to us. The only original people with a few scattered Gentiles like the centurion, but the original uh, apostles, Paul himself, they were all Jews proclaiming Messiah to a Gentile world. We're absolutely dependent upon the Jews for believing in Jesus as Paul and, and then many, many people say that were there at Pentecost, heard the gospel and scattered back over the whole of the Roman Empire. And then of course, Paul himself planting churches in major cities all over. That's why Gentiles ever came to know Christ. And so just putting in bold letters, the fact that this man writing to us, was a Jew, believer in the one God, Yahweh, and yet he begins by saying, there are two persons, and later they would you know, tell us there are three, but there are two persons within Yahweh. There's the Word and there's God. That's the Father and the Son. And the Word, the Son, came and became flesh. And if you doubt that he was God, He's the one through whom all things were made. And you're like, okay, well, that that would make him God. Yes, (laughs) he created everything. So this is the powerful beginning of this uh, gospel uh, from a Jew declaring something unheard of in Jewish circles until it was revealed in Christ Jesus. And then he comes Uh, to verse 14, and that word, that word, that created the world, that word became flesh. That's his point. And by saying as he does here, dwelt among us, uh, literally tented among us, T-E-N-T-E-D, he indicates that all other manifestations of the presence of God throughout the Old Testament were just hints just teasers, just previews, just movie trailers uh, waiting for the grand opening itself because Christ is the true presence of God. 
So all of these manifestations in the Old Testament are smaller, partial, pencil sketches of a grand and beautiful Rembrandt that covers the whole wall. All of God's presence in Israel, in the Exodus, in the wilderness, Mount Sinai, and the giving of the law, the tabernacle, and then the temple, all of that was temporary and incomplete. These were just anticipations of his real dwelling with us when the word became flesh. He is, you might say, the life-size picture of God. Stephen Wright is one of my favorite comedians, off the wall kind of guy, like me, I guess. Um, and uh, he's talking through his routine, these disconnected things he says, and he says, I have a map of the whole earth, life-size. You know, and you're like, I mean, a life-size of this block would be a pretty big map, right? But he's got a life-size. But that's the point. Here is Christ, the life-size version, a revelation of God. And when he says he became flesh and we have seen his glory in the flesh, it shows that his flesh was not the means of concealing God, but the flesh was the very means of revealing God. He is the, it's the medium, it, it's how God was made visible to us in his flesh. And if we, we agree with Charles Wesley's line, veiled in flesh the Godhead, see that is clothed in flesh, we see the Godhead, but it doesn't mean veiled in the sense of hidden so that we can't see it. No, veiled in flesh the Godhead, see, you see him, you see God revealed. In that sense, we'd say unveiled in flesh, the Godhead see, you know, in that sense. And so the reason this is so is that he came in lowliness. And this is an example, as, we, as he says, we've seen his glory, the paradox that the true glory of God is to be seen, the true glory of God in Christ is to be seen not in outward splendor, but in the lowliness in which the Son of God lived and suffered for people. So as Leon Mar says, it's not in spite of his humiliation that we see his glory, as though you're reading through and say, yeah, he was lowly and everything. Ah, oh, but he fed the 5,000. There's a proof he was God, right? Yeah, he was, he got hungry and all this, but also he healed the blind man and he healed Lazarus. Yes, these are great displays of the glory of God. Great displays of the power of Christ. But he is speaking here of flesh. It's not in spite of his humiliations, but by means of his humiliation. And supremely, this is true of the cross. To the outward eye, this is the uttermost of degradation and shame. It's the death of a criminal, but to the eye of faith, this is the supreme glory. 
to the eye of faith, the more shame, the more disgrace, the more glory, the more suffering, the more he's despised and rejected, the more he's glorified because he shows this is the extent to which God will go to save his people. Just glory breaking forth at who God is in his character. He's the God of all power and glory, absolute power. And we have this saying, which is true. It's been borne out again and again. A power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Not so with God. Not so with God. Absolute power. What does he do with it? He sacrifices himself. He gives himself away for those who hated him. He shows mercy with his power, which is an example to any of us who have any authority and any power that is to be used for the good of others. We can't fathom that he would use his power, that he would even create the world with the plan that he will suffer in it. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians 3. He says, I want you to know the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We can't fathom how he could love us in this way. And it's very interesting that when Jesus talks about his own death, he describes it in several places. There's chapter three, verse 14 here in John, uh, John 8, 28, John um, uh, 12, 32 And he uses this word where he says, when the son of man is lifted up, that same word is used in Acts 2.33 and Acts 5.31 to indicate that Christ is exalted to the right hand of God. Same word. He was lifted up and in a way he was exalted and glorified even in his death in a way that corresponds to his exaltation over the whole earth at the right hand of God. That's why in Philippians 2, Paul actually says he became a servant even to the point of death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. Why? Because he manifested the glory of God in the way he died for people. Even Jesus himself in John 23 says, on the eve of his own death, now the son of, is the time for the son of man to be glorified. So his death is the place of the manifestation of the goodness and the greatness, uh, the glory of God in his son. His final glory was dependent on the death that he died. His glory, as we see in Revelation 5, is the glory of the lamb who was crucified. That's the focal point of the glory of God forever. The lamb who was slain. This is who God is. The God who comes and sacrifices himself for his people. That's how he is to be adored from now on forever. Because he showed what kind of love the father has. 
He showed that the Father is the kind of being who would take flesh to himself and humble himself and suffer and die for humanity. That's why Jesus says, if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. This is what God is like. This is what God does. This is what God is. As he says in verse 18 here, in Christ, we have seen the full explanation of God. How good, how glorious he is. And you could call this revealing of the glory of God in the death of Christ painful exploratory surgery to discover the infinite health of God, the infinite goodness and kindness and mercy of God only through the blood of the cross. Well, he goes on to say here in verse 14 that this one was full of grace and truth. And the word truth here, I would take as the word faithful. Truth and faithful are, are just used interchangeably. And sometimes you can translate it one way and sometimes another. Uh, in the Old Testament, Moses wanted to see God and uh, God ended up putting him in the cleft of a rock and he said, I'll have to cover you and I'll have to pass by you. You can see me obliquely, you can see me indirectly, you can't see me directly. But in that he said, I will pass my goodness before you and later I will pass my glory before you. So his glory is his goodness. And when he actually did it, he declared to him a statement of God that's repeated throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's that steadfast love and faithfulness that is expressed here. That's really the essence of what John is saying. Steadfast love and faithfulness were revealed in him. God's committed love, his promised love, his never failing love, his always present love, the love from which we can never be separated. That's the love that he's talking about. This was revealed to us, this grace, this graciousness, this faithful graciousness. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 16, we've received grace upon grace grace. And the idea is one, a fresh grace replaces the former grace, which is replaced by more and more and more and more a perpetual. Almost as though this one, this one pulls back, the next one's coming. Grace in place of grace, very much like waves, right? And when the, the waves pull back and they come again, the waves pull back and they come again. And that's the feel of this grace. And brothers and sisters, we live on the seashore of grace. We live on the seashore of him who says, my mercies are new every morning. They're constantly coming at you. We live on that seashore. It's where we work and we play, and we have our fellowship with each other. 
on the seashore of grace. And it can be nothing else that if he would die for us, then he's going to do all things for us, as Paul says in Romans 8. So if he reveals the glory of God that's full of grace and truth, then this means grace will never stop flowing toward us. And so if, if I see life as a deprivation or as a loss, if I see life in what I don't have, say, and compared to others of what I wanted to have, then I've lost the capacity to see or hear, feel the waves of grace that are coming to me one after another. And likely the problem is that I don't really want God, but I want a lot of other things. And, and those things have drowned out the importance of that grace I don't really want him. I want something other than him. I want something he could give to me. Like Israel, they had God all that they wanted. He came out in the wilderness. They don't have to work for their food. He's going to provide that. And they can just focus on the glory and goodness of God. He, it, was, it was an amazing retreat, you know, to be with God, to be focused completely but all they thought about was the food that they didn't have that they used to eat in Egypt. God, mm, onions, leeks, you know. It, you just think, really? But that's me, that's you, you know. The prospect that this God will lavish himself on you, Darwin, day in and day out. And... And I can give myself to frivolities. Not that those are wrong in themselves, but I'm saying those things instead of God, to the neglect of God, in place of God. But he reveals to us grace and truth. And another aspect of this faithfulness, this, this gracious faithfulness is that it is the truth about God. He's revealing who God really is, the reality of God. And that's why in John 14, the famous passage, I'm the way, the truth, I'm the reality. And right after that, they're like asking him, well, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. If you know me, you'd know my father. And then Philip still said, show us the father. <laughs> like, Duh, you know, that sounds like me. You know, he just said it and I'm, you know, bumbling. Uh, but show us the father. And he says, have I not, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Whoever's seen me has seen the father. So he is the unveiling of the true God. The full, as, as it says in verse 18, it says he has made him known. We use a word exegesis to say you're taking a passage of scripture and you exegete it that is you unveiled its meaning you know you explain the meaning of that passage that's exegesis well this is the greek word exegesis god jesus is the exegesis of god you you look jesus up and then you have god fully displayed in him he's the reality he is what god is like he is the ex exposition of God, the narration of who God is. So this glorious passage 
beginning with who God was before the creation, who he is as as God and with God, this fellow of God who is with God, who made the world, who comes to the earth and fully displays who the Father is through many, many things, but pointedly, especially, as he says in John 12, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Speaking of his death, now will God be exalted and be seen for the God he is, a God who would sacrifice for people. We are celebrating this manifestation of God on earth through uh, Christmas, right? The appearance of this glorious creator uh, who's taken on flesh and who is destined to be on the cross to bear away our sins. And in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was also called the tent of meeting. So that was the place where you met with God, the place where you would taste and see that the Lord is good. In the words of Psalm 34, 8, that's where God gave himself uh, there. Uh, Kay and I got a word that we used on occasion, um, and it's a word, tryst. And many of you know that word. It's a secret meeting, a place of meeting, especially between lovers. So in a provisional way, the tent of meeting was the trysting place with God for Israel to meet with him and, and love him and worship him. The Puritan John Hutchinson speaks of Christ's incarnation and he says the son of God incarnate is the trysting place where sinners may draw near to and meet with God some of the most beautiful words I've ever heard Jesus is the trysting place where you may meet with and close with and be in intimate communion with God forever in him where you standing in Christ and receiving Christ, you can draw near to the Father because you are cleansed in Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ that you bear before the Father. And isn't it wonderful to think of trysts with God, we his people, trysting with the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, we hold back. We, we like the stuff that God gives us by nature. We like food. We like sleep. We like uh, exercise. Perhaps we like TV. We like uh, games. We like uh, vacations. We like our work. We like marriage. You just name it. We like all these things. Human beings do. They do. But by nature, we don't want the God who gives them. My mother uh, died the week before Thanksgiving. She was 94, it was a good time. Death is always horrible, but it was good that she was able to pass when she did. And the pastor uh, of the church where my sister goes, it's a PCA church. Uh, the, the senior pastor had to be out of town and so 
the associate pastor was going to do the funeral. And so he talked to each of us children, the three of us, to get stories about my mom. And I told him this story and he, he shared it at the funeral. And uh, so I want to share it with you. So my mom, among many other things, she loved animals and she had a heart for them. So I'll set it up a little for you looking this way at my house. We had a carport here. This is where the kitchen is. And then the rest of the house is this way, a little den right here. So there was a wild, a feral cat that started taking up under the kitchen because the grate was open. And so the cat was living under the house. She would see it. Of course, it would dart away from her. So she started feeding it uh, out on her little rock bed here. And sure enough, the cat would come, still would run, you know, she'd feed it, it would run. And then she thought, you know what I'm going to do with that cat? I'm going to put this food way down here on the other end of the house where the basement is. And actually, this is open all the way so that the cat can go to the steps of the, of the basement. So she puts the food on like the 10th step down. And then you know what she did? She moved it closer and closer. Finally, it was in the house. Cat goes all the way through up into the house to get the food. And then she started moving it away from the hall, through the living room, dining room. She brought it all the way to the kitchen where she in the den could actually see that cat come and get its food and then run away. And that went on for some time until one morning she's fixing breakfast and she feels something rub up against her leg, you know, cat completely won over. You know, the cat originally could not conceive of the reality that you don't have to sleep on a cold ground floor in the winter. You could be stretched out in front of a fireplace on a rug. You could be in a lady's lap getting your ears scratched. He couldn't imagine the reality of actually being with her instead of just eating her food. And I would submit to each one of you, being with God through Christ, trysting with him as a way of life, cannot be compared to just getting his stuff. And then when you can tryst with him and then enjoy all that he provides and fellowship with him and rejoice in him in the midst of it, it changes everything. It changes everything. He has come to reveal to us the glory of God. Especially, I would say at this time, do not ignore that goodness revealed in Christ. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to see the glory of Christ. We know, Lord, that it must be you. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, you had to shine into our hearts the glory of Christ. You who said, let there be light. The same darkness was in us, he says there, and you had to shine into our hearts the glory of Christ. 
Oh Lord, shine into hearts today the glory of Christ. Amen.